Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of 14 years, I think, and I am a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is John Mike. I'm finishing up my PhD in exercise phys. I've competed in strongman numerous times, columnist for LeadUpTS.com, and I write for major fitness and bodybuilding magazines. Hey, I should point out that, well, first of all, uh, Phil is going to join us in the topic of the day. Uh, we're sort of rearranging this episode a little bit, uh, partly for technical reasons, partly because Phil had to open his uh, his new facility there. But uh, I want to address some news, and um, then we'll go to the topic of the day. But before I do really any of that, this is our 300th episode. Give thanks, man! Ten Leonidas and the brave 300! To victory! So rock on, yeah. That's that's a lot. Uh, <laughs> that's a lot of episodes, and I think what we're going to do to celebrate that is we're going to get Fortress involved a little bit. He doesn't know this right now, so um, if you email him, tell him that you know Lonnie sent sent you. But if you email Fortress a personal tale of something that involves Spartan values, uh. I will <laughs> randomly select a handful of you guys, and I will send you a 300 DVD. I mean, how can you not celebrate the 300th episode with a little, without a little bit of Spartan? Only the hard and strong may call themselves Spartans. Only the hard. Only the strong. So... Uh, when I say Spartan values, that could mean, you know, times that you've had extreme discipline, you know, or hardness instead of softness, you know, or doing without and making it work anyway. Anything that you deem, you know, you can argue as a Spartan value, uh, send Fortress an email uh, in the title of the email. Just say something about episode 300 contest, and I'll let him know it's coming. And, uh, yeah, I'll pick a couple of you guys, and we'll send you some uh, 300 uh, DVD gets you motivated, you know, to be manly. Uh, anyway, uh, let's talk about the news a little bit. There's a couple things that have come across my desk here um, this week. Strength and muscle sport news. Uh, one of them is entitled, now this is actually from Wall Street Journal. And it says, researchers say when you eat each day may be crucial to weight loss. Now, I think this is funny, you know, as some, someone who wrote an article called Temporal Nutrition, you know, about when you eat being important. Um, but this is rodent studies. You know, they're feeding them at different times a day. And, of course, researchers are already pointing out, well, maybe that doesn't pan out to people. Um, but the subtitle of this article, again, from the Wall Street Journal is, Mice on time-restricted diets had lower cholesterol, more muscle than unrestricted mice. Hmm. So uh, there's a lot of comments on this. It's by Angela Chen, uh, February 2nd, 2015. Uh, it says, most advice focuses, of course, on calories in, calories out. But uh, there's a lot of work on timing. And I know I've seen some really good talks at like uh, the ISSN meeting on this sort of thing. But there's this Dr. Panda, associate professor at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies in La Jolla, California. And 
with what he did was he had mice. He forced them to limit how many hours they ate, and they were actually uh, thinner. Uh, but had more muscle tissue, apparently, when he restricted the window in which they ate. Um, it talks about some of the mechanisms behind time-restricted feedings. You know, one of them is that it creates a certain amount of cell stress, and then on a molecular level, cells have to respond. Uh, another one, and more along the lines of the way I would think, I, I think, is when you limit your intake, uh, I would argue especially of carbohydrates, but... You're not in a constantly high insulin, high blood glucose state, you know, right. and when you're in that state all the time, like insulin's a very anabolic hormone. I mean, bodybuilders will dope that sort of stuff along with testosterone and whatnot, but too much all the time actually starts to reprogram uh, cells to become better fat storage machines. You know, it's not just an anabolic hormone to muscle mass, of course, it's a, like a Jekyll and a Hyde, it'll... It'll protect and, and store fat as well, you know. So, but this is uh, Christopher Ochner, director of research uh, development at Mount Sinai Hospital, who focuses on obesity. Again, warns that time restricted feeding may be the latest in a long line of mice studies that don't translate to people. Uh, there's some other talk in here. Uh, it says in the latest paper, Dr. Panda worked on, uh, um, published in the December issue of the journal Cell Metabolism. They put them on a, the mice on a variety of unhealthy eating uh, regimens, including high-fat and high-fructose diets. Uh, one set of mice ate at all times. The other only got, you know, brief periods of 9, 10, 12, 15 hours. They tried different, you know, limitations on when they could eat. Um, again, both given the same unhealthy food options. Uh, they didn't really control whether they ate huge meals in this time window or whether they, they kind of grazed, you know, the whole idea was just that time window. Um, I don't know. Some of what they're saying here, I think you have to be careful not to over-conclude, you know, because they basically came up with the idea that the more restricted the window, the leaner the mice get. Well, okay, you know, I mean, if you can only eat three hours a day, you're probably going to lose weight compared to if you can eat, 10 hours a day you know <laughs> you know I, to me that i don't know we need to take a step back now if they're carefully controlling for the same number of calories that's that might be a different story because you know maybe if you just if you have two huge meals within a very brief period like let's say six hours midday and that's three thousand calories and you compare that to three thousand sprinkled all throughout the day even at night in fact it's the nighttime thing that's probably you know the problem because you know your glucose, uh, uh, your liver's always cranking out glucose. Your pancreas is always cranking out insulin. Like it, it, I think it messes with it. I mean, these guys are even arguing that it says Doctor Matson believes that the three meal a day diet is abnormal from an evolutionary perspective, and that periodically going without food strengthens the body. You know, and then they brought in some of the other people like Krista Verady. We've talked about her on the show before. She's the one who, who uh, she's a professor of nutrition at university of illinois uh, where jeremy is and we both know him uh and she wrote the every other day diet um found that people fasting every other day can lose up to 30 pounds in eight weeks which is far more than the people who were on a typical constant calorie restriction yeah i don't i don't you know. think we'll be doing that <laughs> well see that's the problem the, they were talking about the popularity of a lot of these fasting diets but um oh, yeah. You know, to me, maybe not having a bunch of sugary, carb, fructose kinds of things all night long, that makes mm -hmm. sense to me. You know, because I don't think people – I don't think we really evolved. I think they're right in that to stay up all night, like with internet and cable. and There are so many reasons to stay up way past yeah. 11, 12, 1 a.m., you know, that – if you snacking goes with that, yeah, those are normally periods that you should be fasting. But I think I'll do my fasting while I'm sleeping. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd rather stay up till eleven thirty. Or I mean, I was up, I've been up till eleven thirty the last couple of nights. But I'd rather stay up till twelve thirty one a.m. to to work, you know, than the than the snack and watch, you know, stupid infomercials. Right. Um, yeah. But I actually have some other news too. I, Lonnie, I, this was this actually happened this past week. I don't know if you saw this, but this was in the Washington Post and and Forbes. And, uh, you know, the, the U.S. government is, is actually poised to – they're actually withdrawing the longstanding warnings about cholesterol. Um, so the top nation's nutrition panel has actually decided to drop 
it's cautioned about eating cholesterol-laden food, um, something that's been taken over 40 years um, to, to come to uh, fruition with. So the group's findings that cholesterol in the diet need no longer be considered a nutrient of concern um, stands in, in contrast to the findings even from like five years ago. So the, the final report of that will actually be out uh, later this year. And, uh, you know, when you think about it, we've talked about this on the show, you know, many times. And, you know, although cholesterol, I think, is still somewhat of a concern, um, it's not this It's not this concern that, you know, this has been around since the early 60s. And, you know, some people just naturally genetically have high cholesterol levels. You know, but you talk about LDL and HDL and, yeah, one, you know, we always, we always just kind of dumb shit down, right? You know, the good and the bad cholesterol. But, you know, when you talk about LDL, everybody talks about it like it's just, it's one thing, right? Kind of like training or, or nutrition. But the fact is, you know, when you talk about these cholesterol, you know, markers, it's markers, it's all about the particle size, right? You know, small or large particle size. And I, I really think that people need to start using the particle size more and, and, and we have. And so it's, it's, it's come out more and more and more. Um, as opposed to saying, well, you know, when your LDL goes up, like, you know, things are wrong and you're going to die of heart disease, you know, next week and things like that. Um, but I, I think they, they're revamping the cholesterol guidelines and the final report will be out sometime later this year. Um, I mean, when you think about it, I mean, this has been around for since the early 60s. It's taken like 45 years, you know, to, to, to come to um, a, a, an agreement um, and, and update. You know, guidelines. So um, it, it'll be out the dietary guidelines for Americans sometime uh, later this year. And the same thing can be said about saturated fats too. I mean, the, the last couple of years, you know, more and more information has come out about how, you know saturated fat can be a, a good thing. Um, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna come out and say, well, just eat a bunch of saturated fat. You know, and and, and you know think that well, that's all good too. But it, it's it's not this evil laden villain that that people think it is. Well, even um, there's different the fact, kinds. Because the fact of the matter is, I mean, when you're when you're looking at people that want to drop body fat and clients, it, it's all about lower carb. And I, and I know that's somewhat arbitrary, but it's all about higher proteins, you know, increasing dietary fats and, and lower carbs and sugar. I mean, I know that's an oversimplification. That's but that's essentially the foundation of it, right? I mean, what what, what do you what do you say? Well. Two guys in 1969, Brown and Goldstein, they won the Nobel Prize uh, because they, uh, after feeding saturated fats, they watched serum cholesterol go up. I mean, I think saturated fats in the diet have a bigger impact on blood cholesterol levels than cholesterol itself in the diet. I think a lot of people would be stunned. I'm not saying they're identical, but there's roughly similar amounts of cholesterol in meats almost across the board. And, you know, there are some very healthy, lean kinds of meats like shrimp that are fairly rich in cholesterol. And right. so there are Canadian... Dietary, yeah, dietary cholesterol and what, and what your body produces really are not very related. No. <laughs> I mean, there are some of those Canadian groups that they've... That's what they've said all along, is that dietary cholesterol has very little impact on your blood cholesterol. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, but... Uh, that whole lipid theory of heart disease, and like you said, LDL, or even, gosh, if you're just looking at gross total cholesterol, you know, at one point, uh, one of the members of my family was told, you have high cholesterol, you need to be put on a statin drug, not even wow. with a lipid profile. I mean, forget particle size. I mean, they didn't even look, and, you know, this person happened to have an HDL of 88, you know, oh, and yeah. I'm like, and so I'm like, before we listen to that advice, let's check with the cardiologist because, you know, she was going to go anyway. But the point being is he's like, uh, yeah, you don't have a problem. You know, no, don't go on statin drugs, you know. So I don't know. And it's true. Low cholesterol is, has been related to different kinds of mood disorders and, and this and that. And, you know, the reason this is all slow slow to change is because, let's face it, I mean, you get these professional groups like dietitians, they built their practice you know, mm-hmm. around withholding cholesterol in the diet or saturated fat in the diet. Uh, and they, that's what they get paid 40 grand a year to do in hospitals is tell people not to eat cholesterol and saturated fat. And right. now, you know, I understand that professionals use evidence-based practice, but often the scientists um, are earlier to change their conclusions than the clinicians. And it's because right. the clinicians are banking on a certain system of treatment, 
You know, if if the main tool for a cardiovascular nutritionist is to withhold dietary cholesterol and saturated fat, she's going to be, you know, reticent to say, oh, that doesn't work. Well, now you've lost the reason you get paid to teach people Mm -hmm. not to eat those things. It's a similar thing with the high protein diets. You know, if you're paid to withhold protein from people, uh, it's going to take unfortunately i'm afraid years and years maybe decades of scientific research with scientists saying hey withholding protein doesn't do what you think it does before they finally relinquish that you know because they're losing their main treatment tool and it's not necessarily that it's wrong but it's like we we're going to talk i think uh, after the break with um squats but there's individual genetic differences, you know, and we need to almost start moving toward this individual risk factor model instead of trying to make these blanket statements like don't eat dietary cholesterol, don't eat saturated fat, because for a lot of people, it's just not going to help. Yeah, I mean, there was a there was an article that just came out um, this just this month in the journal Nutrition, you know, higher protein diets are associated with higher HDL cholesterol, lower BMI and waist circumference in U.S. adults. I mean, how about that? Yes, Um, nice. See, and more and more of that's going to have to keep coming out. There was a paper, a meta-analysis by Krieger and colleagues a few years ago, and it was controversial because it basically said a calorie is not a calorie is not a calorie, that Mm -hmm. getting a larger proportion of your calories from protein leads to body composition enhancements and this and that, you know, or – so, yeah, I mean – a lot of this is, you know, individual stuff, but it is good to hear that, though, that maybe they're going to change some of those guidelines. They started softening the dietary fat guidelines uh, in the last dietary guidelines for Americans. Instead of saying eat a diet low in fat, they actually kept the percentage about the same, around 30% of your calories from fat. But yeah. they changed the wording to moderate in fat and with a focus on monounsaturates. You know, so yeah. there's different kinds of sat fat. Some of them are more atherogenic than others, you know, um, heart disease inducing. And, yeah. you know, and of course, there's monounsaturates. I mean, that's one of the smartest things I think have, has changed over the years with a lot of weightlifters trying to gain weight. They're eating avocados, olive oil, peanuts and peanut butter. This is all monounsaturated fat. And I don't think anybody on either side of any argument is going to tell you not to eat the monounsaturates. I know. Sometimes when I don't eat like fat, like in the morning or sometimes throughout the day, I, I get hungry. I get more hungry because, you know, the, the, the satiation is, is, is lower, you know, yes. um, but from that from that article, you know, they basically concluded that Americans who consume dietary protein between 1.0 and 1.5 grams per kg per body weight potentially have a lower risk of de- developing cardiometabolic disease. And I know, you know, 1.0 is isn't just a, a, a shade up from the you know the RDA point eight, but even one point to one point five, and it's a fairly good range. I mean, that's not that's not the range I would probably that we that we would would recommend for strength athletes, mm-hmm. you know. But for those for you know lowering you know cardiovascular types of disease, I, I think that's good. I mean, you might even want to go to you know one point four to one eight or one point six to one eight or whatever. I mean, there, it, it's hard to say that there is no exact. You know, range. It's, I'm not. You know, you're not. You're not going to say, okay, everybody needs to eat 1.8 or 1.5. No, um, there's just so there's there's all, all, always things to really consider in terms of dietary and lifestyle factors. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have just enough time for one more, uh, and this is a little bit more general, but I think it's interesting. This is food for thought for listeners. Uh, if you're interested in evidence based practice, you know, in your training and programming or whatever. Um, this is from labroots.com, and I think the original piece was from Scientific American, January 29th, 2015. Um, the article is entitled, Despite Esteem for Science, the Public is at Odds with Scientists on Major Issues. Now, I'm not even getting to the climate change and all that sort of stuff. I'm going to stick to the biomedical stuff. But what they did was they polled um, lay, lay Americans, and they compared them to scientists from the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And let me just give you a couple of these statistics. I think it's interesting. These opinion differences between the public and scientists. These are percentages. Um, They asked a question, is it safe to eat genetically modified foods? 37% of the lay public said yes, but 88% of scientists said yes, it's safe to eat GMO. It's interesting. There's a 51-point gap there. Um, Do you favor the use of animals in research? 
47% of the lay public, 89% of scientists are pro-animal research. Yeah. Uh, is it safe to eat foods grown with pesticides? 28% of the lay public said it's okay. 68% or 40-point gap higher, the scientists said it's okay. So the vast majority of scientists, but only 28% of the lay public are down with the pesticides being okay. Um, get this one. Humans have evolved over time, you know, agree or not. Uh, 65% of the lay public will believe evolution, essentially, and 98% of scientists. Uh, so you could say, is this science at odds with the public, or is this maybe a more educated outlook? You know, are the scientists right? It's just interesting to look at the differences, you know, but... Yeah, only 65% of people will think that humans evolved over time. Boy, I don't know. Um, and then childhood vaccines such as MMR should be required. 68% of the lay public and 86% of scientists say that that vaccine should be required. So it's just interesting, to, I think, to look at some of the gaps. And honestly, on Iron Radio, that's one of the kind of things that we're trying to do. You know, John and I are on here. We'll geek out a little bit with research. John was just talking about how that affects public policy, you know, with like the guidelines for Americans. Um, after the break, uh, when we talk about variations in the squat, you'll hear a little bit more of that stuff, too. We'll try to break in a few you know, uh, scientific or academic concepts and then, you know, kind of get down and dirty with it from a practical gym perspective. So that's what we try to do here on Iron Radio, I guess, you know, so maybe I'm getting reminiscent here because it's episode 300. But but that's all I've got. Anything left out of you, John? No, that's all i got for right now. All right. Sounds good. We will be back after the break, everyone, and we're going to squat. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, if you simply Google CRC Press in protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for $69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the $99.95 uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So... Uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. <laughs> Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. <laughs> Okay, welcome back, everybody. It's Lonnie Lowry. We have uh, John Mike and, of course, Phil Stevens. And we're going to tackle the topic of the day, uh, which is squat variations. Uh, squats. And, yeah. And by this, I mean 
high bar, low bar, you know, there's foot placement issues. There's lots of things to talk about with this. But, um, Phil, let's start with you and just maybe share your thoughts about the benefits of uh, high bar versus low bar squats. You know, do you like them both? Do you like one more than the other? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, I like them both. Um, And for me, it's dependent on the lifter. So how I... How I adjust somebody to high bar, low bars, all in how they're built um, and what they're built, leverages are built for. Um, okay. Like somebody like myself who is a really short torso and long limbs, so most of their strength is, you know, at the hip or in, and in the core, um, we'll usually go lower bar because it's not that bad a deal for them to bend over the torso um, because they have a short, strong torso. Whereas, you know, somebody with short legs and a really long torso, the, the, usually the last thing I want to do as far as their most efficient strength move is have them bend a lot of the torso by putting them in a low bar position so they pitch forward more. Because um, <clears throat> now you have all that sheer strength on a longer lever arm. Um, so uh, for me, it all, it's all dependent on that, really. I mean, even my Olympic weightlifters, I have some that, that, uh, that low bar squat. You know, I mean, that's not very popular, I guess, but... Um, like my wife is an Olympic weightlifter, and she has really long legs, and so she low bar squats. It's just more comfortable for her, and you know I haven't seen any negative from it. I mean, you're still bending at the freaking knee and standing up, so she's you know she's getting the benefit from squatting. Um, now there are times where I will use like even for myself a high bar squat as an assistance move, mm-hmm. um, you know. But as far as my competitive move, I, I'm I'm kind of a, a low bar. So for me, it, yeah, it's, it's depend on the lifter. Yeah, so. and I think there's an element of sport specificity here. I mean, if you're a power lifter, low bar squats make sense, you know, to me in a lot of ways because they do focus a bit more on the posterior chain. You know, you can get your hips and your your glutes and all that sort of stuff a little bit more engaged, I guess. For sure, uh, again, and to a point. I mean, like I have power lifters that I, they do high bar just because they're built for it, and they're they're stronger that way. So, um, but yeah, it, it does make sense because then, I mean, all you have to do is cross parallel, so they don't need to get their butt to the ground. So it's okay to pitch forward a little bit and get that hip to just cross the top of the knee. So mm-hmm. now, yeah. now I've my understanding because I'm not an Olympic lifter is they're going to do a little bit more on the high bar, you know, more straight up and down kind of mm-hmm. movement. What would be the real advantage to that? Like you said, it's almost unusual that your wife does a little bit of low bar stuff. Well, um, it mimics what they have to do all day, mm-hmm. you know, okay. in, in the snatch and the clean and jerk. You know, they are very upright and they need to sit, you know. Ass to ankles. Mm-hmm. So it's practice what you do is, is what it is. So, I mean, they're, they're trying to become good at what they do. Um, you know, whereas my wife, she can squat ass to ankles in a low bar position. So, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter that much. And, you know, my thinking is she's already doing 10,000 reps with a bar over her head and a bar on her, in a front rack. So what's it going to hurt, you know, moving the bar an inch and a half down your back and still squatting? You know, it's not going to yeah. – to me, I don't see how – like some people think it's just – uh, like it's a sin to have an Olympic lifter low bar squat. And it's like, man, they're still squatting. So, and she's, she's still doing hundreds of reps in a front squat and a hundred reps in an overhead squat. So, you know, it's not going to make that big of a difference. And I don't see it as unbeneficial to have her low bar squatting. That's more comfortable and, and more beneficial to her. Yeah. So. You know, we were just talking about this in class yesterday a little bit. Um, and, you know, we were talking basically about resistance arms, you know, the, the yeah. perpendicular distance, the horizontal distance between the bar and, let's say, your knees, like you were saying, or between the bar and your hips, you know. And the whole idea being with those low bar squats, you necessarily have to move, you lean forward, you know, in that sagittal plane, and you you change the distance of that resistance, you know what I mean, from, mm-hmm. let's say, from your knees, yes. you know what I mean? And that's what... I think is advantageous in some ways or can use be used in different ways. Like in bodybuilding, of course, um, I have to almost force myself to do like the high bar stuff, yeah. you know, because I just like lower bar squats. You know what I mean? I feel like I can use more weight. I actually feel better the next day. Like if I get sore through my, you know, my ass and my hamstrings, and my adductors and stuff, I feel like I've actually affected more muscle mass, mm-hmm. you know, but then I almost have to remind myself to do the high bar stuff. And uh, before we hit record, everybody, Phil and I were talking about this, but we were playing with high bar and low bar squats at his place. Uh, I guess it'd been two years ago now. Mm-hmm. And we weren't using any real weight, but just kind of practicing the move at two and a quarter, that kind of thing. And um, 
I was really forcing myself to do much higher bar squats, and my quads got sore the next day despite the fact that I wasn't using, you know, a lot of load. And it sort of reminded me that, wow, you know, I got to do some of this stuff if I want quad development. Now, don't get me wrong. Obviously, your quads are engaged with the low bar stuff as well, but, you know, and I I like that power look. That the low bar squats kind of give you, you know, yeah. you're just you're just bigger through your well, seat, and you know what I mean. Yeah, and another thing to remember, and I think this is where the whole Olympic lifting argument goes out the the window as far as why they high bar squat. Um, but like I explained in the last few minutes, is you know what I do is is all based on those people's personal leverages, and to me, it's ninety nine percent of the time the people that are successful in Olympic weightlifting are built to high bar squat. Exactly. Is what, that's why they high bar squat is, you know, they are shorter, they have short, strong legs and a long torso, you know, yeah. and they're built up very upright. So, yeah, exactly. So it's not so much that it's the high bar squat is so beneficial. It's that this body type is beneficial to that sport. Yeah. <clears> so. I think just to kind of just extend to what Phil is saying, I mean, everybody wants to squat like their favorite squatter out there. And the fact is no two people squat the exact same. Yes. You, can, you can match them up as close as possible. But the, but the reality is no two people squat the same. And when people like to almost kind of force people to get lower in terms of depth, maybe there's a lot of people out there, they just can't because their hip anatomy won't allow them to. They either have shallow or deep hip sockets, and that's going di- to dictate how deep they go you know, in the hole. You know? and, and for me, I, I, I like mid-trap on, on the regular bar. So I don't, I don't squat with a regular bar. As much, I use the safety squat bar or camber bar. So uh, if anybody's not familiar with that, safety squat bar is basically like your arms are, you know, kind of closer to you. you got a pad on each side of your left and right neck and a pad on for your, for your back of your head. And camber bar is similar to a regular bar, but it, the weights just sit lower and it moves, so it's, it creates a little bit of uh, instability. But for the camber bar, I actually go a little bit lower Um Kind of like not not really low bar, but not mid trap either. Mm-hmm. Kind of somewhere somewhere in between. But um, you know, those are some different terms of bar variations. But yeah, I mean, kind of what what we're getting back to. No two people will squat the exact same. So when I hear people say, "Well, you know, he or she squats a lot," yeah, well, maybe they're maybe they're built to really squat. You know, you look <laughs> at a lot of yeah. like really good powerlifters out there. Um, you know, guys like Chad Wesley Smith. I mean, he's just built to squat mm-hmm. and that's just there's just that's it yeah. you know um you know other guys like me you know i'm i'm built to deadlift mm-hmm. so i'm a better deadlifter than i'm a squatter i'm taller i've got three foot arms you know um right i'm, I'm a decent squatter I'm, I'm fairly proportioned and you know if you have someone who with longer femurs you know than they do you know tibias you know that's going to change the mechanics of their lift same thing with their to- torso you know and tibia length um so there's 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 so many factors really involved um, everywhere from, you know, bar placement, like for me, low bar just doesn't really work nearly as well as like a mid trap. I don't go high bar either. Um, because that for me personally, that doesn't feel comfortable as well. You know, a lot of that is also depending on your upper back mass as well. And if your T-spine mobility is really poor, okay, then that's also going to affect your bar placement as well. For me personally, my T-spine mobility is really good, but at the same time, mid-trap is better for me than than it is low bar. So all these things you got to take into into consideration. It's not you just well just get under the bar and squat. You know. Yeah, no, and that's right. one thing that I really irks me about. You know, these gurus and fitness professionals out there that they there is the one way to squat for everybody, and it's like no, that's just that's just wrong. You can't state that. You know, everybody is so different. You can't tell me that everyone needs to be in a low bar position doing this. You know, it's just there's too many body types out there. And that's like, you know, Iron Radio sponsored athlete, J.P. Price. You know, he just squatted 905. And I'd love to squat 905. But I'm not going to be stupid and say, you know, I'm going to start squatting just like J.P. does. I'm going to try and copy his squat. Right. We're built totally right. different. That'd be just as stupid as him saying, man, I wish I could deadlift like Phil. I'm going to try and copy his deadlift. He's not built to deadlift like me. You know, right. <laughs> and there's a reason my deadlift is bigger than his. Mm-hmm. And his squat's markedly bigger than mine. You know. You know, Phil, <laughs> so. I think it was an interesting point that you were saying that, uh, it's like selection, like people with a certain body type become Olympic lifters, you know what I yes. mean, as opposed to Olympic lifters should high bar squat. And I, I don't disagree with that necessarily. I'm just saying yes. those people, it's a good point, that that sport recruits those sorts of body shapes. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons, at least, that that seems to be advantageous. I mean, I there's a reason basketball players are tall. Exactly. 
Yeah, <laughs> he can extend this well above and beyond just powerlifting and strongman. It's just it's with softball, it's with baseball, it's basketball, it's football, it's you know, suck whatever it may be. Like people are just built to do just different things, and the, and the ones that are the most successful. I mean, just have the certain body type. I mean, there's this. I'm sure you guys have seen it. There's this um, pitcher that's gone on um, this sort of graph that, has, that depicts different body types of various different sports. But even just the the slight variation within the same sport of uh, of varying body types is is astonishing. Mm-hmm. So right. people are just made to just do different things. I mean, and it's. I think it's just a kind of a fallacy to say, "Oh, well, I need to squat like this guy. I need to be like her." Blah blah blah. No, just be yourself and just take advantage of your body type and, and, and your strengths and your weaknesses and your and your leverages. Wasn't there something all over the web uh, last year? I think it was. Was Ripito involved about high bar squats? And there was like funny videos flying around about, you know what I mean? Like people favoring high bar squats. Almost like what Phil was saying, like almost as if it should be for everyone. Yes. Yeah, um, I think there was something like that. I don't remember exactly what it was, but um, yeah, to, to 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 say people, everyone needs to squat this way or deadlift this way. You just you probably just want to just run the other way. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can tell you, like I said, I think a bodybuilder looks at it in a very different ways. You know, these are two different tools. They're literally yes. working different muscle groups. When you're when your programming is structured around muscle groups and not movements you know Mm -hmm. then i can see almost doing different high bar versus low bar squats almost on different days you know i I mean if you had a different day for quads versus hamstrings and glutes i don't know that's not the way i do it but um yeah there's just a huge difference like i said i was just i was stunned that my quads got as sore as they did just doing mid trap and a little bit higher trap you know squats yeah and that's the neat thing about the different variations of squats you can get you know, if if all you've done is low bar squatted for the last year, and I just put a safety squat bar on your back and change those leverages, you'll get sore in places you didn't know you had. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. Yeah, you know what? It's a fun experiment too, and I'm not I'm not telling listeners to go do this necessarily, but if you were to do, let's say, I don't know, five or six sets of five reps, focusing on the negative, you know, with a high bar versus low bar, um purposely trying to get sore and it depends how conditioned you are and everything else but you can feel it it you know it's amazing like when i do the higher bar stuff i do get sore very anteriorly you know and i do the low bar stuff and it's always my glutes and my you know hams and adductors that get sore i mean you can sort of prove it to yourself Mm -hmm. you know that wow that clearly hit my posterior chain you know that low bar stuff you know now let me ask you this then what about foot placement uh if someone were to say Low bar squats should be done with a wider foot placement. Uh, agree? Disagree? What do you think, John? It just depends on the person. Mm-hmm. I mean, and sometimes I get kind of irritated when people say, well, it's like they separate different they separate like different sports as if like it's for squatting. So it's like, well, there's a powerlifting squat, then there's an Olympic squat, then there's like a bodybuilding squat. I mean, it's it's all squatting. Mm-hmm. It just it just depends on again what you're built to do, what your what your force arms are like, what your proportions and limb lengths are like, and it's all going to be depicted based on that. And I'm sorry to say, people, I mean, you just can't you can't change your genetics. I mean, mm-hmm. some people are just better squatters, you know, than others. You know, I mean, so the thing about it is you need to find what works best for you and what you really want to accomplish. If you're just someone a general population person who just wants to really just lose fat and gain some lean muscle, it, it's not going to really matter, mm-hmm. you know, what, what squat that you choose to do. You know, I seen, I know a lot of powerlifters. Some of them have a really wide stance and some of them don't, mm-hmm. you know, some of them have low bar or high bar and they use different bars or whatever it is. You know, their upper back is, is, is just different and their joints is all, is all very different. You know, and, and the thing about it is, you know, you the, the bottom line is in terms of spinal mechanics and all that. I mean, we always talk about like neutral spine and all that stuff. But I mean, the, the reality is, you know, it, you can't you don't have perfect spinal neutral spine all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, especially like when you squat and deadlift, you, you cannot squat or deadlift heavy loads 
really without simultaneously creating large compressive forces on the spine. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying like that's all bad. I mean, it, it, it can be if, if your mechanics and technique aren't right, um, but you can't squat without creating large compressive forces associated with any type of articulation of the femurs and the tibias and the patellas, even if your knees track perfectly in line, you know, w- w- with your feet. And there's always, you know, when you get heavy loads on your back, you know, this perfect technique that you have at 135 and 225 ain't going to happen when you put four or five, you know, five, 600 pounds on your back. Mm-hmm. So your leverages and the mechanics change as you get stronger. And as you get stronger, weak points start coming out more and more and more. So it's all based around what's best for how you're built. Okay. And, and, and I would recommend everybody try different variations of squatting in terms of feet placement, bar placement. Like for example, for me, my box squat stance is wider, a little bit wider than my normal squat stance. Okay. Hmm. And so, you know, then my, my, my sumo is actually about the same, maybe slightly wider than my box squat stance, you know? So you have to try those different things out and see how you can best maximize your mechanics for your lift based upon how you're actually built. You know, John, I think that's a two-sided coin in a way because, you know, you can focus on your strengths or you can say, I'm not built for, let's say, a high bar, more narrow stance if we're playing with both of these variables, but I'm going to do them anyway. You know what I mean? Like That's what I have to make myself do. I'm less comfortable doing those, mm-hmm. but I actually notice quad development when I can make myself do those. You know what I mean? So it's not my genetics actually sort of I'm more comfortable not doing that, but I want to attack that as sort of a weakness because, I, because I'm not good at it, if that makes yeah. any sense. you know. So If you look across the board at powerlifting, and let's talk raw powerlifting, um, 90% of the time you're going to find a foot placement – Within a couple inches of shoulder width. It's just where it's at. There's not many people that are ultra wide out of gear. Right. You know, even your huge squatters. I mean, you look at Lillibridge, it's about shoulder width. You look at freaking, you know. Ed Cone. Ed Cone. Dan Green's a little wider, uh, you know, but he's different. Um, you know, they're all right in there. And I mean, hell, look at Tom Platts. Exactly. You know, he. there's a lot of powerlifters out there today. That would love to squat 500 for 23 reps at his body weight. Right. And he was yeah. very narrow and very high bar. That's a very respectable squat. Yeah. But again, you know. it goes back to what I, what I said <sighs> minutes ago. He's built, he was built to squat. Yes. Yeah. In fact, Platts used to say he was a power lifter that sort of masqueraded as a bodybuilder, you know, because mm-hmm. he just loved, he loved that movement. You know, he loved mm-hmm. the squat. He loved the power. In fact, Fortress is quite a bit like that. You know, the old way that Fortress used to describe the, higher bar an arguably higher bar with a little bit more narrow stance was he would call that olympic squats mm-hmm. you know and he'd say i have i have more of an olympic type squat and i just came to understand that's what he meant of course you know mm-hmm. what i mean um but you're right about the body the body shape and all that sort of thing you know because like i said fortress is surprisingly to me narrow and high bar is it really narrow and high bar like a bodybuilder might do like with a lighter weight no but it's more than you might think you know so that's i mean you look at me i'm low bar but my feet are very narrow and of course that's because i have a jacked up hip you know so it's just you you do what you have to do yeah Yeah. well let me ask this then phil because uh I heard uh, some of the guys down in Columbus talking about this. I'm pretty sure I've heard you talk about this, so I just want to bring it up. But So uh, when we talk about the resistance arm, you know, the horizontal distance from the bar to, let's say, your knees, you know, or you could look at the opposite way and look at the horizontal distance from the bar, you know, if you draw a straight line down through gravity back to your hip joint, let's say, mm-hmm. um, this notion that if you keep your toes slightly out – and mm-hmm. your knees slightly out, you're actually flattening yourself against that plane of motion, if that makes sense. So in of other course words, it makes sense in a way. Yeah, you're yeah. limiting. If you don't look at the body in a three-dimensional form. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you got to split the body in half the other way as well. Yeah. You know, we don't just have one plane. The minute right. you drive your knees out to the side, you've got different lever arms going that way now. Right, right. Um, but, yeah, I do agree with that largely. Um, yeah. But no matter what. Does that make sense though that you know the the bar when you know when you've got the bar on your back if you can make your if you can get your knees back a little closer to the bar. Yes. There's less <laughs> tension on the knees. 
For sure. Right. Yeah, I mean, it totally makes sense. I mean, if you if you have any kind of understanding of physics, even, I mean, it just makes sense. You know, you're you're creating a smaller lever arm, um, and that's the same thing with your back. I mean, like I said, I mean, I put people in low bar positions because they have stronger torsos, mm-hmm. and usually that means a shorter torso. But I still don't want them to overdo it and go into a good morning just for the sake of doing it. You know? Yeah. Even then, I'm still trying to force have them force their chest up as high as they possibly can to to limit shearing force. You know. No, right. So no, understood. In fact, you know what? Maybe on um either on our podcast box app or on uh the Facebook page, I'll show a diagram that I was showing in class. So just you can actually calculate mechanical advantage. You mm-hmm. know, when you right. when you use the not just the weight, but I think that's that's the concept that's fun here is it's not just the weight on the bar, it's the weight on the bar with consideration for the resistance arm, in other words, the yeah. distance to the joint of interest, right? You know? So, so like it basically, I guess if you have to put like a, a a definition to it, I mean, you're talking about force arm, lever arm, it's the same thing. But I guess from a biomechanical definition, it's just the perpendicular distance from the line of action to the axis of rotation, right? Right, exactly. So, so, so you you take a given person. And you put them into, you know, high bar, mid trap, or, or low bar position, and, and squatting, and then you turn around and have them do, you know, a front squat. I mean, it, it the, the mechanics change because you're changing the you're changing the force arm, okay? yes. you're changing the lever arm, which is which is one of the main reasons why front squat is so much harder because the weight's further away from the axis of rotation, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and because of front squatting. You know, you get a more vertical back angle. Okay, you can't sit back as much. You know, with your hips, your knees tend to come forward a little bit more. You know, you look at Olympic, you know, lifters, and I mean, when they front squat um, in the bottom, you know, before they come up, I mean, God, it's like their, their knees are like way in front of them. Yeah, you know? right. Like, yeah. You no, know, it's and it's everyone talks about. Yes, you have sheer force and compressor force, but I mean, the fact is, humans are just in general, are, are very well constructed to squat and deadlift. And, and the spine and knees can normally handle compressive forces actually actually very well. But the, the problem is when people start to when – when you have people that don't know what the hell they're talking about, when you start pushing boundaries and, and tell people they need to do this and do that or get down more or blah, 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 everyone, everyone for some reason – goes to well it's bad technique it's fault it's faulty technique that may have some merit to it okay but but the issue is you probably just need to regress a couple of steps and just look at your program design mm-hmm. you know for for one i mean technique is everything but it's specific and it's individual to the person mm-hmm. yeah th- a lot oh. of the rules are the, are actually similar to diet you know you talk about nutrigenetics and this and that and there's actually every year i think med size sports exercise does a uh, a manuscript on performance genetics you know and sometimes this is just do you have the gene for this or that i know we're talking more like body shape of course um but yeah it does create that sort of it, absurdity you know when you get online and then there's this huge debate you know which is better high bar or low bar squats i mean yeah. that that's a, almost an asinine yeah. debate well yeah and the, the 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 feet width is the same thing i mean and luckily with in recent years we finally had people coming out and you know with good articles and documentation of look not every femur is created the same mm-hmm. you know some femurs the, the the head you know comes out at a perfect 90 degree angle Whereas some, it might be a 60 degree angle and that person is better at squatting a little wider because the ball, their hip, you know, just it's in a different direction. We're not all, we're human beings there. We have, we have anatomical differences. Yeah. There's a, there's so. a, there's a really good video um, that's been out for a while from uh, Stu McGill and, he, and he's, uh, he's going through the, a, a test um, on a, uh, like a table type of test and he, he's, he's working through an individual, working with an individual and they're doing a test based on, it's almost like um like like rock backs in, mm-hmm. in, in a sense. If he knows what those are, anybody knows what those are in a, some type of warm up sense. You know, when someone starts to posteriorly tilt, you know, the pelvis, you know what what people call you know the the butt wink. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where that starts to take place. Is that's according to Stu McGill. That's where you are can have maximal lever arm advantage with 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 squatting, and that's where you should somewhat stop in terms of your depth. You know, because you see people that can go full range of motion, almost, you know, ass to grass. But as soon as they break, you know, parallel or slightly slightly below parallel, you know, then they start to have posterior tilting of, of the pelvis. While 
they can get in that position, it's actually creating, from what I understand, of what I've read and heard from him, it, it creates a, a very big disadvantage and actually loads more um, on the spine and the mm-hmm. lumbar spine, you know, by, by compensating for that lack of um, compensating right. advantage. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So. All right. Yeah. I know, Phil, you've got to open your facility, brother. I got one yeah. question for you before you go, though. Okay. So this is just a fun one. What other variants? I mean, I almost hesitate to say machines with either of you guys, but what other squat variants do you like or do you try to consider? For my people? Um, For you, your people, yeah. I mean, are you just like, listen, I, I, it's really got to be 90% of this bar. all the time, you know, or, or whatever. No, I really like the safety squat bar. Um for about everybody, it really keeps you from. Yeah, it teaches them not to get folded over, exactly. because it tries to fold you over, and that's that's a, a typical problem. Um, other than that, I mean, it, for the individual, there are some people I really like box squats for. Um, I'm one of the few people that like box squats if done right for raw lifters, Me too. Um, because they can get strong in that weak area most of the time. Um, most every raw lifter is weak right at parallel, exactly because your lever arm is the longest there. You know, you'll see them, they'll fire out of the hole, and then they'll slow down right at that, that weak area. So we hit that weak area by box squats and make them start there. Um, mm-hmm. Other than that, I mean, it's just lunges, and it depends on the individual. You know, sometimes we do extra hamstring work. Sometimes it's step-ups. Sometimes it's good mornings. Um, it just depends on – I'm very much into to programming for the individual so and their own weaknesses. But Yeah, I'll tell you from a bodybuilding perspective, sometimes – I will rarely do front squats. I probably should. For me, yeah. high bar squats give me a lot of what a front squat would give. I mean, if I'm looking mm-hmm. for quad quad development and that kind of thing. I like hacks, too, every once in a while. I don't think it's my bread and butter move, but, you know, it's more of one of those add some volume finishing movements, I guess. You know, because, yeah. again, for yeah. someone like me, it forces me out of that posterior chain. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and let's face it. I think the best bodybuilders, and I'm not one of them, but... The really huge guys, they they look very posterior chain oriented, you mm-hmm. know. And right. now there are exceptions. I mean, some of the guys are huge. They they have that sort of mountain gorilla look. But I remember back in the day, like Mike Francois, he also was very very thick through the quads, you know. And mm-hmm. it wasn't just his his back and his his behind. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think uh, stuff like. If you do have a tendency away from that, especially in bodybuilding, you got to attack a weakness. You know, if mm-hmm. if you're really if you have fairly big legs, but your quads don't look, you know, if they look weak, then mm-hmm. stuff like hacks for volume and stuff. There's a bit more of that volume requirement. You different variations and slight differences in angles and like you guys were saying, like uh, leverages and that kind of stuff. I, I'm not ashamed to mix that stuff in. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. But. Yeah, I'm a big fan of box squats. I do those, you know, regularly. That's that's actually one of my main forms of squatting. I'll switch different bars, like safety squat bar or camber bar, you know, and throw some bands and some chains on there. Um, I don't front squat really a whole lot, um, just because I, I I overhead press a little bit more often, just because a strong man. Um, but I've, I've done front squats a lot. I mean, I've, I've front squatted 300 to 315, and it's 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 a great movement. Um, it really blasts your quads. I'm a big fan of uh, rear foot elevated split squats, you know, to really hammer the quads. Um, mm-hmm. You can get some core activation with that too. Um, yeah, I don't point. really do much leg press or, or hacks. Um, you know, I like, you know, GMs, you know, glute ham raise. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like lunges, lateral lunges. I think lateral lunges and any type of like, you know, um, frontal movement exercises are really undervalued. I don't, I don't see those being used a lot. Um, you know, as much as like, you know, regular lunges or any type of sagittal plane type of movement. So, you know, I would recommend people do those, you know, you can do, you can, you can do step ups, but you can do the lateral version of them, um, you know, reverse lunge. I mean, there's so many different types of like, variations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and, and it's, it goes back to what we just said a few minutes ago. You kind of have to find the, the, the ones that, that work best for you. And, and the, the squat thing, that we've been talking about in terms of what works best for your mechanics, okay, is is the sim, is a similar principle to assistance exercises. Everyone has their own assistance things that they know help build their lifts, mm-hmm. you know, right? So, are you doing those? Are you tracking those? Okay, and, and and it's okay to try, you know, different things. Like, you know, for for me, 
um, you know, heavy tricep work, you know, lockouts, speed stuff, help for my overhead pressing. You know, the same exercises, the distance exercises that may not work for like the next person. Mm-hmm. But, that, but that's where experience, you know, and knowing your body really come in. And everyone knows, you know, Phil and Lonnie and people just listening, that, that shit doesn't come in six weeks yeah. or, or a year. It comes like five years, ten mm-hmm. years. You know, so it's just it's just getting under the bar, the experience under the bar. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I mean, I'll add one more thing. I mean, everybody talks about powerlifting being a posterior chain sport. My argument would be: show me a very respectable squatter that doesn't have huge freaking quads. Exactly. You know, you look at yeah. Willowbridge, you look at any of those guys; they're gigantic quads. Like, if yeah, your you knee look- is freaking bending. You're using your quads. That's right. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> exactly. I mean, you, look, you so. look at classic guys like Ed Cohn and like Kirk Kowalski. I mean, God, the quads were massive. Yes. Well, look at Platts uh, himself. I mean, you know, yeah. but Platts, you could see that what really made his quads stand out wasn't just the quadriceps group. It was those giant adductors he had. Mm-hmm. You know, they, like, yeah. his quads were sitting on top of Christmas hams of adductor. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> beautiful. So. You know, I'll, I'll say one last thing because I know Phil's got to go. Um, I like what both you guys were saying about, like you just said, Phil, you can't take your quads out of this. Like, I like low bar squats. Why don't I do a lot of front squats? Well, because my quads get hit anyway. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I don't know. It's not like you're completely, you're you're creating tendencies, you know, on the posterior chain or this or that. And like you guys were saying, it's as long as you address your own, you know, best fit. Mm-hmm. I, squat, squat. It's like bodybuilders. They fuss with. I'm going to work on the lateral head of this or that. I'm like, you weigh 170 pounds, bud. You know, so don't try you know, too much specificity. The attempt to target too much, it kind of goes out the window. I mean, this is a mm-hmm. compound movement, multi joint, big mass yeah. movement. You know what I mean? And working toward respectable poundages and and volumes. Uh, you know, that's kind of where it's at, I think. Yeah, yeah one more thing before – I know Phil has to go, but I think people kind of make a mistake when they when, when they, they just they, – when they, when they want to develop, you know, quads or whatever, it's like they just want to squat and think that, yes, your quads are involved with squatting no matter what type of squat that you do. But I still think it's important to do other assistance exercises for quad development, whether you're a bodybuilder or a powerlifter or whatever it is because that the transferability is really high. And you, and you just get you just work different muscles at different angles, you know, to to maximize some of your main lifts. You know, to say that well, you know, you can't just you can get big quads when squatting, but I think for most people, you got to do other assistance exercises for volume and things like that because right. you're not going to squat for four or five hours, you know, type of thing. Yeah, um, I will. You know what though? I I tried. Uh, I found myself I was unable to squat for about two to three months. Uh, in a period over the last two years. And I tried, I th- almost an experiment, I tried to maintain my quad mass with leg extensions. It didn't work. I mean, yeah. it didn't work. So <laughs> yeah. these accessory movements, you know, it, it's, it can be misleading for someone who's not used to this. I'm sure most of our listeners wouldn't try to substitute leg extensions, you know, for a squat or, you know, that kind of thing. But it was just amazing to me, like, wow, you know, that might add a little volume and be a finisher or, you know, maybe work on a, a, some of the soft tissues around the knee a little differently, but, man, it didn't maintain my quad mass, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Okay, All right, guys. guys. All right. I'm out of here. This day, we rescue a world from mysticism and tyranny and usher in a future brighter than anything we can imagine. Give thanks, man! To Leonidas and the brave 300! To victory! Hey, listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. 
There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. Uh, knee sleeves. Wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So... Thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.